Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them, and from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We are presented with the familiar story of the Transfiguration. It's probably familiar because on each second Sunday of Lent, which is where we are today, we are presented with one of the accounts of the Transfiguration. And today, of course, we heard from the account in Mark's Gospel. And as I was preparing for this homily, I, I looked back on some of my homilies that I had written over the years for this Sunday. And I read, I read the, the Bible account as well as some commentaries. And I realized that there were a couple, of, a couple of features of this story, or a couple of points of this story, or themes of this story, that I had never spoken about before. So I thought I would do so today. So, so the first point, the first point comes from, comes from where this story exists in Mark's gospel. So this is in chapter 9, the very beginning of chapter 9. But what I mean is we have to go back to chapter 8 and, and recall some of those stories that preceded the transfiguration. So in chapter 8, we have the story of Jesus asking his apostles, who do people say that I am? Now they give some examples such as Elijah, such as one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus was very pleased with that response. He affirmed that response and he said, No one has told you about this, but only my heavenly Father has revealed it. And so he basically named Peter then as the head of the apostles. 
But immediately following that story, Jesus gives the first prediction of his passion. He says how he is going, he'll be going to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, he will be tortured, he will be crucified, and then in three days raised. Now, this was shocking to his apostles. What the heck is he referring to? What is going on here? I mean, they've been with him to, to hear him preach, to see him do these miracles, miracle healings and the like. They're expecting big things of being associated with him, but they weren't expecting this. And so Peter, feeling full of himself because of how well he had already responded to the previous question, decides to say, oh no, Lord, this surely cannot happen to you. And Jesus gave that very politically incorrect response, get behind me, Satan, for you are thinking as man does, not as God does. All of this happened before the transfiguration. And in fact, the very first verse of chapter 9, which we did not hear today, says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain. For six days, the apostles have been talking about this prediction of his passion. For six days, they have been talking about how Jesus had kind of put Peter in his place. You can imagine that the morale among the apostles was getting pretty low. Because this didn't seem to be what they had signed up for. Now Jesus knows what's in their hearts and what's in their minds. And so he makes a decision to take up Peter, James, and John up to Mount Tabor and reveal his divinity, reveal his glory to them. He is transfigured before their eyes. Now, mountaintop experiences of God's presence is, is very common in the Old Testament. We have that story of Elijah being told that he is going to experience God's presence up on the mountain. And he first hears an earthquake, and then thunder, and then fire. And he knows God isn't in any of those, but he hears a quiet, rustling sound, and he immediately hides his face because he knows God is walking by. And then, of course, the famous, the most famous, I would, I would say, in the Old Testament is Moses going up the mountain for 40 days where God gives him his law as, as given in those Ten Commandments. But there's something different about this mountaintop experience, though. For on Mount Tabor, the Son of God was being revealed in his glory while still remaining human. What that means is the apostles were able to look upon Jesus as his clothes became dazzling white. They could hear him as he spoke to Moses and Elijah. They could touch him because he was not setting aside his humanity to reveal his divinity because since the incarnation, 
Those were two bound together now for all eternity. In Jesus, we have someone who is fully human and fully divine. And so the apostles were getting a glimpse of something unique that no one had ever experienced. Witnessing the fully human Jesus revealing his full divinity. To go on to the second point that I wanted to make. So on Mount Tabor, we have Jesus revealing his divinity while still remaining human. But there's another story on another mountain, actually in a garden in the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus reveals his humanity, his raw humanity, while still remaining divine. As I looked at the different accounts, the one that really jumped out at me is, is from Luke's Gospel. After withdrawing about a stone's throw from them and kneeling, he prayed, saying, Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Still not my will, but yours be done. And to strengthen him, an angel from heaven appeared to him. He was in such agony, and he prayed so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. Jesus never seems more human than in the Garden of Gethsemane as he knows what is about to happen. He's only moments away from being arrested and beginning his passion. And he really doesn't want this to occur. He is not, he doesn't want to go through all of this suffering. And so that he prays fervently, he's in agony. So much so that an angel is sent to strengthen him. But of course, he does not give up his divinity because he does accept the Father's will and he goes through with his passion and death leading to his resurrection. My dear friends, it's important for us to always keep in mind the fact that our Lord and Savior is fully human as well as fully divine. In his humanity, he obviously suffered pain. He cried. He wept for the death of a friend. He was hungry. He was angry. He experienced all the things that we experience and even the hardships of life. But he was also fully divine. And it was because God the Father willed that the Son of God should forever be incorporated with a human being, that the death of that human being, who was also the Son of God, meant that we now have salvation. Another aspect of that Garden of Gethsemane account we just heard, he prayed fervently, his sweat was dropping like blood. We've probably experienced that. We've probably experienced praying fervently to our Lord and Savior. 
Maybe it's for a bad medical diagnosis. Maybe it's for a relative who is really struggling with addiction. Maybe it's someone who has feared that they're going to lose their job and not be able to support their family. There are all kinds of things that we pray fervently for, that we pray harder than we've ever prayed before. And it could be in God's will that our prayers are going to be answered exactly as we pray. But what if they're not? Does that mean that Jesus has abandoned us? Does that mean that Jesus just has turned his back on us? Absolutely not. Because we believe in a Savior who has experienced all of these things. And he is with us. He is there to strengthen us, to comfort us, and to remind us that even in the unexpected death of a loved one, I am ready to welcome them into eternal life. And for the other sufferings that we go through this life, he is there to remind us that I suffered too, so much so that I gave up my life on the cross, but look what my Father did with that. He offered you the gift of eternal life. And so, my dear friends, as we continue our Lenten journey, let us always remember we believe in a God who loves us so much that he sent his son. And a son who loves us so much that he was willing to become one of us to experience all of what life gives us and all of what we have to endure through life. But also a son who is fully divine. And it is in his divinity that he is able to offer us all the gift of eternal life. That is what allows us to endure whatever life throws at us because we know in the life to come we will enjoy heaven together with God our Father, His Son, and the Holy Spirit.